welcome to Connect with Climate Change, a series of virtual events from Scottish Power in collaboration with University of Strathclyde and University of Glasgow, taking place throughout 2021. These events offer a platform to engage with academics, students, public policy and businesses to share ideas and views on a range of key climate change topics ahead of the COP26 Climate Change Summit in Glasgow, November 2021. These podcasts are focused on the topic of revisiting consumption for a climate-friendly future. I am Deirdre Shaw, Professor of Marketing and Consumer Research at University of Glasgow, and I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Tim Jackson, Director of the Centre for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity and Professor of Sustainable Development at the University of Surrey. Professor Jackson is a world-renowned expert on sustainability and author of acclaimed publications, including the landmark book, Prosperity Without Growth, and most recently, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism. Over three podcasts, Tim and I will be exploring key questions, including what do climate-friendly consumption lifestyles look like? What changes are needed to support a sustainable consumption future? And how can we support and embed behavioural transformation in consumption? Welcome to the first of these three podcasts, where we will focus on consumption in a sustainable society. So welcome, Tim. It's really great to have you here. Tim, you've just published a new book, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism. So I have. Um, I really you. enjoyed it and would absolutely um, recommend it. In this latest book, um, throughout your work over many years now, you've pointed to the problems of overconsumption to both human and planetary prosperity. So referring to the cycles of consumption that succeed so well because they fail to satisfy and the iron cage of consumerism. So we're really presented with an image of citizens being trapped by consumption. So before we unpack these challenges in our later conversation, I'd like to start on a more visionary note and ask, as you also invite us to do in the book, to dare to see beyond and imagine and to dream, if you like, of a society where we've got this right, and ask you, what does consumption look like in a sustainable society? I think it's really important to distinguish, Deirdre, between consumption and 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 consumerism, um, because we're never not going to consume. We're never not going to have consumption, and and that is obviously going to involve, you know, consumption of material, consumption of energy, consumption of services. Uh, consumption of things in some form or another and so I think what we're talking about really is is going beyond consumerism and I I would define I know there are very different ways of doing this but I would define consumerism in a way as an attempt to fulfill all of our needs social psychological and material through the consumption of of material things and and so we, we turn over it's almost as though we turn over our entire human aspirations to processes of consumption and to me that's kind of what consumerism is and and so the vision if you like is of thinking of our human aspirations for what they are in other words for being 
psychological needs, for being social needs, for, for, for having to do with relationships, to having to do with friendship and community, and to some extent also to having having to do with, with our own physical, psychological and social health and putting that concept at, at the heart of our vision so that so that we go back, if you like, we go back to the to the roots of what it is to be human, to ask what it means to be well and to do well in society and and to place that at the at the heart of of our vision of of human progress. And I think that's a place where actually we can be materially light. We can do with less consumption. We can have fewer material things. We can feel less burdened. We can be freer. We can explore our own human potential from a very a very different perspective, not one which is judged by how much we have or how much we own, but actually by the richness of of what we do and how we interact with each other and what forms of fulfillment we achieve and it's it's that sense of of a richness that lies beyond consumer consumerism and beyond consumer things and beyond consumption itself uh, that i think is the vision that i'm that i'm trying to paint in post growth and i'm trying to i think almost recover if you like, a sense of the human spirit that goes beyond materialism. And I think that's a really helpful and important distinction to start out with in terms of consumerism and consumption. So thinking about this vision, what would be the key changes that we might observe uh, in terms of our role as consumers in our markets and how we, we kind of understand consumption? There are lots of things that kind of would need to change, but I, for me, it's important to approach this in the right sequence. And I kind of think in a way the right sequence is to think, well, what's what's wrong with the system that we have that we would and how precisely would we want to shift that? And to me, one of the things that comes to mind there, one of the most important things is this this question of shifting away from a metaphor of growth a metaphor of more and more towards a metaphor actually that comes that to me belongs to the most crucial lesson that we've learned from the pandemic it belongs to the lesson of of health and that is a metaphor of balance if you, if you think about health health is not continual growth it's not about more and more it's actually much more about balance it's much more about not having too much and not having too little. It's not this simple idea that more and more is always better. It's actually that there is a kind of a point at which things are optimal, at which things are balanced, at which things, at which point the organism is functioning well, at which point the mind is functioning well, at which point our appetites are in balance, at which point our skills are in balance with the challenges that we face in society. And to me, it's understanding that what we're aiming for is balance rather than a sort of linear or exponential increase. That's the, the foundational point, if you like, from which we begin to design our approach to this vision. And where it's gone wrong, it seems to me, of course, is that markets 
don't really do that very well. They don't distinguish at what point, for example, you know, food is more food is a good thing to have as opposed to um, less food in certain circumstances. And so we find ourselves, you know, continually advertising foods to our kids that are not only not particularly nutritious, so they don't satisfy nutrition balances, but they are in excess things that lead to imbalances in health and so handing over all of these functions to markets and to profit making firms whose goal is to accumulate profit is a recipe for social disaster and so i think we have to kind of we look at ways that have to rein in that profit maximization motive that work to the benefit of society and individuals rather than just shareholders and that think beyond the simplicity of the market, that profit maximization principle of the market, and towards a principle of the balance that contributes to the health of the individual, to the health of populations, ultimately to the health of the planet as well. You know, I couldn't agree more. This balance is, is really top of our minds right now, I guess, in terms of our own health and planetary health. I wondered if you could say a bit about how, you know, in this vision, in what ways does does the economy support human and planetary health? I mean, that's a really good question. And obviously what I'm kind of suggesting is that the that's exactly what the economy should be doing. In the sense, if health is a fundamental basis for prosperity and the economy is about delivering prosperity and provisioning prosperity, then its principles must be aligned with with health. It must be aligned with the health of the body, with the health of the psyche, with the health of community and with the health of the planet. And so we're talking in terms really of thinking, rethinking economics as a kind of economy of, you know, if you like, an economy of care, because it's care mm -hmm. that is a fundamental basis for assuring our health in all sorts of different ways. And so we're looking essentially for an economy that that nourishes, that pursues well-being rather than output and that measures its progress in those in those ways. And that's a very different economy than one that prioritizes growth in the GDP and and measures its success against the rates of growth that we achieve in that very, very narrow indicator. It's an economy that looks much more carefully at the dimensions of health and how they're playing out in society. And I think it also, in many ways, renegotiates or challenges the kind of traditional divide between market and state and and makes it clear also that 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 community and home for example are essential elements of economy and and have a, a an absolutely vital role to play in in those relationships of care many of the primary activities of care actually take place in the home outside the market and outside the state as well and so it becomes very important to reconfigure where we think economy is happening and to protect not just the market and neither the simplistic notion of a, an intervening state, but rather a facilitating and enabling state that allows market, home, community to function in, in an economy of care.
Yeah, we've mentioned growth quite often here and the title of your book is Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism. Could you say a bit more about what we're having instead? Have we abandoned growth and capitalism? It's, it's difficult to sort of talk about abandoning because what we have to do, I think, is build the foundations for what follows. And we have to build those foundations, firstly, from that clear vision. And, the, and insofar as the vision is a vision of health and the economy that guides it is an economy of care, one of the things that we have to do very urgently, I would say, is to protect the livelihoods that in their turn protect our care. And that's that's one of the things that's gone, you know, radically missing and was missing actually even before the pandemic, that for several decades before the pandemic, it was precisely those people who matter most to us in terms of health and in terms of care and in terms of our livelihoods and our well-being who had suffered, whose livelihoods themselves were precarious, who who worked under increasing obligations to increase productivity rather than to provide the care of, of human services that comes through the dedication of time that our nurses and our carers and our teachers and our cleaners even put into society. That quality of work in society had gone missing it had been under rewarded undervalued until until that point at which we realized actually these people who have been so mistreated misrepresented in capitalism are the most important in society and and to me that's you know that's a lesson that we have tried to run away from all too quickly so the discussion for example around you know, the 1% pay offer to NHS workers just months after we'd stood on our doorsteps applauding those people for saving our lives is an indication that we have not learned that lesson. And so this society, this vision of a world, the workings of an economy after the pandemic, actually, but also to some extent after capitalism is to place those that work and those people in the center of the organization of our economy because they turned out to be the most valuable and that ability to work that ability to care inside the market and outside the market in the home in our communities in volunteer communities building that capacity seems to be to me, to be one of those central dimensions, the central structural dimension of an economy of care after capitalism. And you do, you know, you do talk about work and how, in your words, you know, paid employment looks nothing like the utopian dream of restorative labour and fulfilling work. So this is a really important aspect, isn't it, around, around care, both in terms of work and society, individuals, and around consumption. But if I could just move along a little bit in terms of thinking about our consumption lifestyles, if you like, in this vision. So there clearly be things that we'll need to have less of as a reduction in consumption is imperative. But what you've been talking about is this being balanced with things that we can enjoy more of in terms of human prosperity. And I wondered how you've think consumer citizens will respond to these shifts and what are the sorts of things that we're maybe enjoying but also finding challenging in a revised future? I mean it's interesting that you use the word challenge there because 
you know, I think this is, it's a feature of consumerism and consumer society and indeed of capitalism to some extent to kind of offer us what appears to be a simple, comfortable vision of having everything at our fingertips of convenience and almost unending luxury as the end point. And of course, some people can achieve that in a finite material world. But the idea that everybody can achieve it in perpetuity is a kind of chimera. It's a sort of, you know, it's a false god. It's a vision that actually isn't achievable by everybody. And and that's one of the problems of consumerism. But I think there's a deeper one, which is that it doesn't align well with the human psyche. We weren't evolved for lives of absolute and unending comfort. And therefore, actually, our brains don't respond well. And our physical organism doesn't respond well to that environment. It actually responds a challenge and so you know there's a there's a very fundamental point in a way that this vision of a better richer more fulfilling life actually has to turn and face challenge rather than simply try to avoid it and find the comfortable path but in turning to face that challenge and and i think you know this is something that we should be teaching our kids from the moment they come into the world in a supportive environment not kind of chucking them into you know impossible situations where they have to sink or swim and and I'm of an age where I remember swimming teachers who used to literally do that to us. You know, here's your challenge, guy. This is a deep pool. You can't touch the bottom. Learn to swim or start, you know, choking with a fear of drowning. That's that's a way that we used to teach kids challenge. And I think it's entirely wrong. And it's also entirely wrong to to, to move away from that and say, look, you're never going to have to swim. Here's your armbands. Here's your supportive environment. We're even going to increase the density of the water you're swimming in to make swimming easier for you. And there'll always be someone stood there to drag you out if everything, if anything goes wrong. And actually, the knowledge and our understanding of the human psyche is that it works best and it is most fulfilling when you develop, develop skill to meet challenge. And you push that process so that as you develop your skill and you can then meet a challenge more easily, you develop more skill and you can meet more challenge. And you, what you gain in that way is a sort of almost an ever expanding horizon of human potential that has just become closed down by this idea that we shouldn't find things challenging, that we should find things comfortable, that we can always find a material solution, that the future is an endless cornucopia of never wanting for anything and never having to strive. That vision's led us completely away from the path where I think the evidence shows the path where real human fulfillment lies in 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 striving against challenges to prove ourselves develop our skills and achieve a sense of well-being that just doesn't exist in in consumer society you know it sounds perhaps a little bit kind of abstract the way that i've framed it you know i'm thinking of the the satisfactions of 
a virtuosity of being really good at something. I'm thinking of the satisfactions of care, of really connecting with other people. I'm thinking of the satisfactions of contemplation, those spaces between the business of our lives where horizons open up that we never imagined were there. And all of those satisfactions, it seems to me, have that same character of accepting challenge and to some extent resisting the seductive lure of comfort, convenience and material excess. I mean, it sounds as well, Tim, that you're talking a bit about flow, which I'd like to talk about more about later. But I guess in facing this challenge, it's important for us to be able to envisage this future and see ourselves as part of the shift. Yeah, I mean, I think it's de- it's definitely important to know what those routes are, are towards th- this place. And it's definitely important to have some sense of the benefits that they bring. But I do kind of feel in a way, what I don't want to say is what exactly this this place looks like in the future, because I think it looks different for everybody. And I think one person's vision of it is not the same as, as actually people discovering that vision for themselves. I think the lockdown, I would argue, gave us some insights into it at certain points. And I'm not trying to trivialize the you know the kind of the, either the tragedy of the pandemic or indeed the the real huge human difficulties that people suffered under lockdown but i think there were moments there where we could see that a a life in which we were more connected to nature in which we had stronger mm-hmm. relationships with each other in which we were not driven constantly into the mindset of shopping and materialism in which we developed those new skills that we had kind of forgotten about that and it's very interesting that there's evidence you know it has to be said from quite early on in the pandemic but there is evidence of people saying there are bits of this situation I would quite like to go on afterwards I quite like that ability to spend more time with my family or to develop these skills. I quite like that to be a part of our post-pandemic world. And so it's those kinds of components, I think, that give us a sense of how we can build this vision, even if they don't absolutely tell us exactly what everybody is doing in that post-capitalist world. They give us a sense of the direction of travel. I think, Tim, you very kindly answered the question you said you didn't want to answer. Oh, good. That's, <laughs> by giving, that's by giving us a sense of what, what would be the kind of critical differences, the sorts of things that we would see in this vision that would show that we have moved forward around those kind of relationships and the insights that we've, we've seen from the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I think also the other thing we would we would hope we had seen at least is um, is 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 that we didn't have such a huge footprint on the planet that we weren't destabilizing the climate and using resources faster than they could be replaced and damaging our oceans and our rivers and so on. So there's that would be a consequence of having got this right, this vision. Um, and and equally, of course, it would be a, a society in which we would need to see, we would hope to see less inequality. We'd hope to to find 
um, more cohesive communities. We'd hope to not be in that position that I was describing when the most important workers in our society were under-rewarded and, and had precarious livelihoods. So all of these things, at, if you like, at the macroeconomic level or the macro planetary level, these would be very important characteristics of success in that society. No, thank you. I think you've really um, highlighted those macro planetary dimensions filtering right down to our everyday individual family community and lives. Thank you, Tim, for your time today. And I look forward to continuing this conversation with you in our second podcast as part of the Connect with Climate Change series.